This is the Bartholomew Town Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome into the Bartholomew Town Podcast. It's Bill Bartholomew here with you as always. Today, we have a really important and interesting discussion with Dr. Malia Safri, an economics professor at Drew University, who will be speaking as a part of the University of Rhode Island's Fall Honors Colloquium discussing community economies, organizing for the common good. This is coming up on September 26th at the university, and you can also um, observe it online. It will be posted um, on the uh, colloquium's website. So this discussion today really touches on an overview level of the notion of, I guess for lack of a better term, collectivism, and the different ways that you can look at that, the different lens that you can look at what a collective economy actually is. And I'll let um, Dr. Sofri do all the explaining here, you know, in terms of, of her expertise, which is profound in this area. Um, but just an important discussion to have, right? And sometimes these topics get relegated to the academic setting or the coffee house setting or the artistic community setting, and people dismiss them as totally unrealistic. But the reality is that's simply not true. There are examples throughout history and today of this model of assembly of world structure that are functioning and thriving and it is very important that especially if you're someone who doubts these possibilities to really take a look at that history and take a look at where we are today and I think even most importantly where we're going what the trends are in terms of um you know, you can look at it where we're going in one of two ways. You can look at it in terms of, hey, we're positioned better now than ever for this type of collective economy discussion or installation, right, implementation. Or you can look at it and say, boy, we are trending towards a feudalistic society. And the need for real robust discussions on workers' rights and workers controlling the means of production are becoming more and more essential, perhaps even, to the survival of the species. So this is a high-level discussion. Um, at the same time, it provides a strong overview. And I would encourage you to uh, also follow up on the university's Honors Colloquium program as a whole because this year's theme is not business as usual, business for the common good. And right, that conversation around the common good is so important. And it seems like it'd be so basic, yet it has become something secondary of sorts, right? And why? Why do we have to have a world that's structured in a way that is not ideal for the common good? So uh, be sure to check out that colloquium. I'll also note that Bartholomew Town is brought to you in part by the University of Rhode Island Online, including their cannabis certificate program. And talk about industries of the future and contemporarily. Uh, cannabis is an exploding industry, and the University of Rhode Island has a program that can help you become equipped to compete in this field, in this sector, in a variety of different aspects. Visit uri.edu slash online slash cannabis to learn more. Collective economies. Give us the 30-second the elevator pitch for someone who has really no context for what that even means. Um, these would con include all the different kinds of economic initiatives where people are getting together and producing, sometimes consuming, 
important goods and services. So a lot of my direct work has been with one kind of group that that fits into this broad umbrella. And that would be worker cooperatives, which are groups of workers that collectively own, manage, and run businesses without bosses, without capitalists. This can be framed in a couple of different ways. There's obviously the notion of you could look, I mean, we could go to Franco Spain and look at some of the anarcho-syndicalism that took place there. We could look at really aspects of unionization. We could go back to even pioneer towns perhaps and find some of the early um, Western history, non-indigenous Western history, where we've seen uh, some of this pop up. In the modern context, a lot of people hear this and they say, well, that's not how the world we live in today is built. Yet there are examples of whether you're talking about here in Providence, there's a cafe that is entirely worker owned and operated. There's no boss. It's essentially uh, a cooperative with a syndicalist type of, of approach. And it functions really well and it's totally doable. Um, it's just about reframing how we see the world, but it's a big ask at the same time. There's so much in what you just said. So there's this aspect of present day, what certainly a lot of my work has been trying to show how these things actually exist all around us, how they actually function. And, and you know, there's not so, so much studies and scholarship around this, but there is a few and especially of sizable kinds of cooperatives that were in the Northwest. What are, what were the plywood worker cooperatives? And some of the studies that came out when those plywood cooperatives with thousands of workers converted and employees bought out those previous uh, firms and then turn them into worker cooperatives, one of the things that we saw was that they actually had a reduction in the amount of supervisory um, workers even necessary. Well, it turned out that when workers owned and operated the plants themselves, productivity actually went up. You know, they had real skin in the game. Um, so there's there's one fascinating thing to do in terms of tracing out it, their the past instantiations of these sorts of practices. And as you really rightfully said, there, there have been lots and lots of examples that didn't always go by this exact name that I'm calling it today, which is being used by a lot of people in this movement. But there have been lots and lots of examples all throughout human history, indigenous, of course, inside the Americas of collective production. I mean, in some ways, there are some amazing historians, John Curl, that um, that have written books about this history. Not, not as many as I would like. Um, Jessica Gordon-Empard is another one, too. But so... I, I think that I, I definitely use a lot of that work and that's extremely important for also revising what we think of as our collective human past. But I think that a lot of my work has been kind of trying to do what you said, which is show people, wow, these things are almost in every single city. We kind of don't look twice at them, but they're, they're fascinating. And um, one of the the biggest, the, the largest worker cooperative uh, in the States is right here in New York City, in the Bronx. Uh, it's 
uh, uh, Cooperative Home Healthcare Associates (CHCA), and we I've I've talked to them. I've had them come and visit in the university, and you know they're it's it's just like a fascinating kind of different way to run a firm, right? To to make sure that the everyday functioning of the company puts workers and worker well-being at that that's what they're maximizing. They're not trying to maximize um, shareholder profit, right? Profit that will go to some external party. They are focused on what is going to increase the well-being of the w- primarily women workers. It's 99% women in this CHCA, the Cooperative Home Health uh, Home Healthcare Associates, right? And they're predominantly women of color. And the, this was one of the, this was the only for a while, actually, before 2011, they were the only home healthcare aides in the city that actually had healthcare themselves, because that was a, before actually Obamacare, it was routinely the case that home healthcare aides were, you know, employed by firms, conventional firms, and they were not uh, given uh, they didn't make enough money to qualify for healthcare insurance. And this right. was a kind of firm that said it is unconscionable for our workers to be going out there and providing healthcare and they themselves cannot access it. Right. So making, yes. making big, small everyday decisions that always just have your eye, the, the prize, your eyes are on the prize and the prize is, what's good for workers. Right. It's And, and you're right, that does have a lot in common with unions. So I am not trying to say that this is the only organization that that of course focuses on worker well-being. That and, and you know, there are lots of examples of where worker cooperatives are also unionized too and they see they see the commonality in that struggle for sure. Um but this is just another I think tool in that in that box. Absolutely. And the difference between this type of cooperative and a, for lack of a better term traditional union is fundamental in that the union is functioning as a unit in tandem in league with perhaps management or a corporation or uh, some sort of, as you described, supervisory entity, whereas a cooperative is the supervisory entity. It is the management. It is the, the corporation, so to speak. And those fundamental differences translate into a radically different worldview that without question is dramatically different than the world that we currently live in. I mean, I- not tell you over the last 20 years the kinds of ways that I have seen people expand their own capacities because workers are actually right workers have to do things like run the, their own business they have to elect their own management the management is beholden to the workers and can be recalled by the workers right and say and the workers can say you're not doing a great job at actually man- I mean that's that's a subversion that we don't often see I don't even see in my university I, I can't go up to my upper management and say I'm sorry you're not doing a good job even though I think that sometimes they are not right, right. Um, so I I think that that there's this 
um, different way of being that means that people get to also step into leadership capacities. They are stretching and growing. Um, one of the some of the women. Uh, one of the things that we see actually in New York City is that immigrant women, Latina women, are really at the forefront. At least in New York City. I'm not trying to say all around the country, because as you look at different cities, you will see different kinds of demographics leading in terms of composition. So this is not uniform across all cooperatives, right? So I'm speaking about a, a, a this city, really, right? But in this city, uh, Latina women are at the forefront of this. And when I talk to them, they say things like, you know, I'm teaching my kids every day that you don't just stop learning. You know, I'm trying to do something. I'm trying to be part of a movement. And it it changed me. L- last year, I couldn't afford to buy shoes for my kids. But this year, I'm giving talks at conferences about different models of economic development. You know, that's a, that's a, these are, that that's a big jump. And that means that it's, it turns into a different kind of world inside that space that is just like it it's so amazing to see even right when you walk in and to kind of see the difference that that makes when you're having meetings and when and sometimes when i when i'm talking to my students they think that this much democracy has got to be ineffective to see, you know, right. in their opinion. And and I kind of want to, I, I tell them, right, about what I've seen, which is that once workers, I mean, it takes a while because we are not necessarily a culture to this way of being, right? In our, in schools and in other um, workplaces for sure. So it takes a while to understand, okay, how are we going to make decisions together? Are we going to need consensus? Which kinds of decisions are we going to relegate to the management that we are also empowering to make daily decisions? Which kind of decisions need to come back to us because they're so big, they need a what's called a general assembly to finalize that decision, right? And that is like, okay, so people are trying to figure out how are we going to do this? How are we going to produce? And then surprise, surprise, they're, they're also going to try to make decisions that also benefit the collective. But once they get used to voting and once they get used to this kind of form of decision-making, there's also this sense of like, all right, it didn't go my way this time, but that's okay. I'm not going to block consensus. Once you get used to this, you also start to get used to things not going your way. Right. And that 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 compromise is part of being in a collective. So once you get once you get there, it can actually become more productive. Right. Um, Than conventional firms. Most definitely. And it's it's again, it's a major shift in terms of, as you say, that compromise aspect of things and also turning to a dear leader of sorts and having that sort of top down guidance which at times can be in certain scenarios can be an effective and most efficient way of operating but oftentimes then perhaps it's efficient but not just perhaps it's effective but not all encompassing in terms of the actual needs of the group 
So it's a huge distinction to be to make right there. And yeah. further, I think to your point in general right now, I heard an interesting quote last night, just last night on a podcast that at one point in human history, religion or God was sort of the driving force. And then that shifted to nations or states uh, of sorts. And today with the the nature of the beast in a digital world, the nature of the beast in terms of people having seemingly unlimited choice, it's starting to become more tribal, uh, for lack of a better term, in terms of where people get their uh, content from, where how people see the world around them is becoming tribal for better or worse, certainly for worse in terms of our electoral politics, for better perhaps in terms of forming alliances. So those natural tribes almost lend themselves either geographically or philosophically to a, a world that perhaps is better equipped than ever to embrace a collective approach. Of course, the problem would be the obvious, the corporate interests and the folks who would say, well, wait a minute, you know, this impacts my bottom line or my, you know, my, my, my desires from a, you know, domination standpoint in a negative way. So I'm going to thwart it every way I can. I mean, I'll say that I feel like, you know, going back to this idea that it's, it's, it's all, it's, it's, it's in our present, but we don't always see it. Mm. It's in our past. And we Definitely didn't always even read our, we, you know, uh, Graeber, I don't know if you've read this book, uh, The Dawn of Everything by mm -hmm. um, uh, David Graeber and uh, Wengrau. It's a beautiful book, um, but it's sweeping, right? And they go over 200,000 years of Homo sapiens Amian history. And they're actually sort of trying to see, you know, trying to show that, Actually, there were just a wide variety of ways that humans have organized themselves and experimental ways, too. And it wasn't this inevitable like march towards inequality that in some ways is part of the way we narrate our human history. And so there were lots of different collective experiments of how we ran things. And, 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 um, and so in, in that sort of from from that perspective, I would say, I mean, and I was really persuaded and inspired by their work too. It, in some ways, it's like it's always it's always been a way that people have also resisted, um, resisted the worst kind of forms of human cruelty. Uh, in slavery, in colonialism, like in it, every, you know, if, if you start to look at history with this kind of lens, then you will see that, yes, there was slavery, but there was a lot of resistance against slavery as well, where people would form maroon communities, where they would collectively produce what it was that they needed. And they intentionally set up relations that were diametrically opposed to those that they experienced under slavery. Right. So like um, history is full of these examples where people have also resisted, contested and formed other kinds of collective ways of living that weren't um, that 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 contradicted, opposed the the colonial, the capitalist 
the feudal ways of organizing society. Mm. Um, so I, I, I want to say that, that, that we've always done that. And as for right now, and what I think of as like the fer fertile conditions for this way of thinking, I think more than ever, people are really hungry for, un you know, the, uh, the, um, I planned on sort of touching on this tomorrow too, but, you know, 20 years ago, right when, or more than that now, 40 years ago, when we had Thatcher and Reagan exclaiming that there is no alternative, this is it. And then against that, we had the formation, against the formation of the World Economic Forum, we had the formation of the World Social Forum that had as its kind of call to arms that another world is possible. And now yes. when I when I when I when I'm sort of say that to my students, they kind of see that as duh. Yes, we need we need another world. It's not just another world is possible. We need another world. Let's get to work on making that other world and and as for the sort of theme of this, you know, colloquium when I thought, well, for the common good, what a, that's exactly the kind of work that all of these collectives are doing. Coll yes, collectives yeah. are embodying the common in their way of being in this world. How else can you get to the common good by asking the common to, you know, also participate in that, right? right. You can't just decide on the common good for everyone else. They have to be involved in constituting that project. Yeah, completely, completely agree. So just wrapping here, um, and, and very much appreciate your time. We've gone over what you uh, offered, so I don't want to uh, bog you down uh, any further here, because, but this has been a great discussion. Um, if if anyone wants, oh, my pleasure. How can people discover more of your work and engage with you uh, if, if they're interested in any type of engagement, be it academic, personal, or just want to share their story yeah, of the success of um, You're welcome to reach out to me, msuffrey at drew.edu. If, you, if you're interested in thinking about this for your own city, where you are at, um, you can find a lot of my work that's just open access on I'm uh, on ResearchGate or Academia. Um, these are two big uh, academic websites that host a lot of papers by uh, professors so and scholars. So, um, and you can find me tomorrow and come ask me too. <laughs>